Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Unfollowing Mum. Today I have a guest with me who I'm really excited to chat to. It's going to be a little bit of a mixture today from talking from a professional standpoint of view, but also talking about our lived experiences. And I would like to introduce you to Katie Prattley. Hi. (laughs) Hi. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. No, thank you for coming on. Could you tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am a parent and youth coach and I work with parents who want to improve their relationship with their kids, usually tweens and teens, and create calmer homes and more connection. And through that, create confident, high self-esteem kids. And before that, I was a secondary school teacher for 20 years. And what took me away from education and moving into coaching was when I became a mother myself six years ago um, my own parental history came to a head in a way which I knew I had I knew I carried a lot of trauma and I was always from a very very young age very conscious of the even hereditary patterns of parenting and, and trauma in my family But it wasn't until I was pregnant that I had this abject panic about being a parent. And then once I had my son, the world just turned on its axis. And it was like I could see clearly all the ways that my own parenting had affected who I was. And I had this drive to uncover and unearth and unpick and heal as best I can. Um, all of the, all of that trauma so that I wasn't taking that forward into my own parenting um, and repeating the kind of parenting that I had. So I went through this process of therapy 
And part of that was starting to train as a counsellor and then a coach. Um, and all of that then took me down this pathway of coaching that narrowed and narrowed until I found myself wanting to work with parents and help them as well. And what I find with the parents that I work with is that whether they are conscious of it, whether it's explicit like my own history, maternal history, or, or not, that so many of us have these experiences of our own parenting, our own childhood, which are coming into our own parenting in really unhelpful ways. So I think what you do when I found you um, is, and you're the first person that I found who speaks about this, is so much of what you say and your guests say resonate with me, but I just think it's such an important topic for people to talk about as well, so they don't feel so alone. Um, And also to get people thinking who aren't conscious of the patterns of parenting which they're bringing forth into their own parenting and actually starting to question it and think, oh, is is that how I want to parent? Is that right? And coming from a place that's about them rather than just the oughts and shoulds that they've been taught. I love that. And I think one of the things that I always say is I don't think of myself in terms of a gentle parent. I think of myself in terms of a conscious parent. I'm very (laughs) conscious of my parenting and the things that I am doing and the ways in which I'm trying to not be the complete opposite of my parents, because I guess sometimes she didn't get it too bad. I mean, she got it bad a lot. But sometimes there are things that I look back on and think, uh, okay, that that was not something that I wouldn't carry forwards. But I have this blueprint that I'm looking at going 99.9% of that. I don't want to repeat. I mm. don't want to repeat that cycle. How can I parent my children without repeating that cycle? And occasionally that's going to slip through because I think that's a big part of breaking down your generational trauma is making those mistakes and occasionally repeating those behaviors that we learned when we were children are going oh I've messed up there and it's being accountable for it and saying okay yeah no I've made that error there and I need to change that I was doing this last night with my son he did not want to do his maths homework he's kind of in that he's 12 and He's kind of in that much more hormonal phase than I would have expected Mm. at this stage. Like he's more like a 14, 15 year old in the way that he's quite aggressive with his responses. And I was thinking my my de facto stage here is to absolutely get in your face and scream at you, frighten Mm. you until you comply. That's what my instinct is saying to me. That's what would happen to you. That's what this this is how you'd handle this. Frighten him yeah. into shutting up and doing what he's told. But that's not going to help either of us because all mm. he's going to do then is respond out of fear. So you're then sat there going, oh, well, how do I do it the other way? How do I yeah. do it without turning into my mother? Because I'd have been terrified of my mum yeah. if I'd have even slightly responded the way my son can respond to me sometimes. And it's all in the communication, which Mm. is really difficult when you don't have those foundations. So you mentioned that what got you into this was having had personal experiences growing up. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so I I haven't seen my mother for 27 years, which is an incredibly long time. And I remember 
when it was all um, coming to a head, there was a like a talk show on called Trisha at the time in the 90s, yeah. show my age. And I remember, <laughs> I, re- I don't know why I remember this, but I remember very clearly, sometimes you'd have like families on who, children or parents who hadn't seen their, um, you know, their, their kids for 30 years. And I remember at the time thinking, 30 years is such a long time. And yet there was a voice in me. I remember thinking, that's going to be you. Um, so I I grew up in very middle class, relatively privileged um, family. Um, and when I was nine, my parents divorced and it was a brutal divorce. I absolutely adored my mum. I adored my dad too, but not in the way that I adored my mum. And there was a lot of things that went on at the time. Um, and my, from the work that I've done now, I suspect that my mum might have borderline personality disorder. I would certainly say that she was a classic narcissist parent. But you don't see any of that when you're a kid. And she did, um, she did a wonderful job of making me feel like whatever she said was true. And whatever anyone else said was not true. So she divided and conquered the family very much. She split me and my brother up. Um, I barely had a relationship with my dad for many years. Um, And certainly until I was almost out of my my teen years. Um, She moved three hours drive away and took me with her. Um, But then when I was living with her, there was a lot of trauma there. Obviously, I didn't know it was called trauma at the time. And I used to just get these rages out of nowhere. And I'm trying to describe it as it was at the time. And then I can describe it as I know it is now. And so I would be, I worked hard at school, top of the classes, sports teams, music, you know, excel. If there was something there to excel in, I excelled in it. Um, I was well behaved. I was well liked. uh, But behind closed doors I would get these these rages of of anger and my mum's way of dealing with it was with shame and guilt and what a horrible person I was and even when I was very young I used to feel very frustrated because although her marriage had broken down she was a teacher at my school um, and she had had a very public affair with one of the other teachers all the kids knew about it before she left my dad um but she denied, 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 and then made up what I now believe were, was made up because I've never, ever seen any evidence of it. But I truly believed at the time that my dad was very violent, which is why I sort of didn't speak to my dad for ages. Mm. And then within a few months of leaving, she then announced she was in a relationship with this man. And so he would be coming around the house. And I I used to play along. And then after a few hours, I would just get very, very volatile and angry and was shamed for it. Now, I understand now as an adult, that was because I was suppressing all of these emotions. And because she couldn't acknowledge that she'd had this affair or that there was truth in it and that I wasn't lying when I said to her, I think you're having an affair. Bearing in mind, I was nine. Um, it was very confusing and very frustrating. So that was coming out as what society would see or outside of the bad behavior. So then it was very easy to be labeled as, as bad behavior. And that was kind of our relationship. I mean, I could talk about this for hours. That I was bounced around between schools, sent away to London to go and live um, with other families at sort of quite privileged schools up there. 
And by the time I was 14, I came back. The relationship absolutely fell apart then. It's six months after that, I, I was taken into care and then stayed in care till I was 16. I was only five miles down the road. She never picked up the phone once. And I remember I worked in a shop and someone from her school came into our paper and they saw me and they said, do you realize how much you've upset your mum? Your mum was devastated when you went. And I said to this woman, I said, I think she must have said something like she'd be, she'd love to. She was devastated. She didn't want you to go. And I said, you do know that she changed the locks within 12 hours of, of me going. And I could tell by the look on this woman's face that she didn't know that because she dropped the subject and left. And I thought then this is, again, I would have been painted a certain way. I would have been painted as an awful person. And there was so much emotional abuse in there. And by this time it had tilted into low level physical abuse as well. Hitting, slapping. I would wake in the middle of the night and she'd be dragging me out of bed because I would have done something which hadn't lived up to her standards or she'd have got herself wound up in the night thinking about things she was angry about but none of that was ever ever shown to anyone all she would say is the things that sort of that I'd said in retaliation and again now I know teenagers I, I've worked with teenagers for 20 years I know them as a therapist teenagers say really shitty things to you sometimes and teenagers get in angry moods and even if you take away all the stuff I was reacting to I don't think I was that bad a teenager I smoked a cigarette. There was the odd time I went out and got drunk, but I didn't. I didn't do anything really bad, not to warrant this. Uh, and I did go back when I was sixteen. Um, I contacted her when I was in foster care, and we sort of tried to forge this relationship. But within a few months, I, I was out again, and so I got. A, I got a flat. Um, it was sort of a, a very, very dodgy room at a, a dodgy end of town, living next to a dodgy man. And I got myself through my A-levels. And again, she was just down the road. She never had any contact with me. Not really. And then I st uh, that's when I started to come off the rails, really, and got myself involved with some dodgy people and really went off the rails. And I stopped going to college. And that was the last time that we did speak for many years. She, she rang me very angry about not going into school. She'd heard that I wasn't going into school. And at that point, I remember thinking... This is so bizarre that you are not mothering me in any way. I'm in care. I'm, I was in care. Now I'm living on my own on like six pounds a week for food. There are days when I have no electricity, no gas. I'm sitting in the dark. None of that bothers you. But it bothers you that people might know that your daughter isn't in school. And at that point, I thought, and I'm not going to chase this anymore. This isn't healthy. And since then, I've had some contact with her. I've tried to forge a relationship, but everything I do is taken the wrong way. It's taken the exact opposite way. Um, and I've had these extremely abusive letters over the years. And about two years ago, I, I wrote again. I think I sent a birthday card and sent a picture of my son and she wrote another four-page letter of abuse and she began it with, let me make it clear, do not, do not ever contact me again. And she ended it with that. And I don't think I was trying to forge a relationship with her. I think I just feel very, very sorry for this woman who I know has no one, no one at all. Uh, you know, and so I suppose in the end, she has cut off, finitely cut off that relationship. 
but in the beginning it, it yeah it was it was me that said I need to protect myself now that's how it felt at the time I need to protect myself I realized that this I was never going to get what I needed from this person yeah so I suppose that's where we are and the offset of that was that on the outside I seemed this really capable person because I've been forged into this and I know I use terms now that are adult therapy terms but I had been put, forged from a very early age into this people pleaser so if I could prove my worth I would go all in on it so throughout all of that I was still doing A-levels throughout all of that I got to university um, and got you know the respectable job of being a teacher Um, and I masked very well what was going on underneath Uh, and what was going on underneath was someone desperately broken and in every way that you that I could be I was searching for relationships that would fulfill me but repeating over and over again the relationships of people that would need me to people please for them or in the worst extremes would be looking for vulnerable people like me consciously or subconsciously yeah. Yeah. Oh, I relate so hard to that that piece. It sounds like you were an incredibly self-aware, very young woman, teenager, to say, okay, no, I need to protect myself from this. Because it took me to my 30s and the complete breakdown of everything around me to say, what am I doing? Mm. <laughs> what is happening here? I can't keep trying to please my mum. And it's really interesting and incredibly relatable what you say about a total lack of interest in how you are living, your mental well-being, your physical well-being, everything else, until it became more of a public matter and it became mm. something that she could be judged for. Yeah. As a, a teacher then it's, well, your child, you're a teacher, but your child's not going into school. Mm, That's not Mm. good, is it? And then all of a sudden that grabbed her interest. That's incredibly common in narcissistic mothers to be interested. Yeah, to be interested only when it it reflects on them. Yeah. And again, I, you know, as I said, I, I never really got any contact off her, but I did get a letter when I was 21 um and these things make me laugh because they are so ridiculously bizarre I got a letter saying how disappointed she was that she hadn't been invited to my graduation and I thought you why would you be why why would I mean the truth was I didn't even go to my own graduation but why would you think that you would be invited and the answer it's obvious to me it's probably obvious to everyone because then she could have the photo then she could create this this world. And I'm actually in contact with her family, her sisters, who she is now not in contact with because similar experiences of how she has treated people. And I was talking to one of them a good five or six years ago. And I said, well, you know, when I was in care, and she said, sorry, what? You were in care. And I still think I didn't ask her too much about it but I thought how can you have not known that because when I was living in that flat there was a time on my GCSEs day results my mum wanted to come and take me to get my results again another shining thing and picked me up with my aunt and I now look back and think 
what did my aunt think was going on when she came to this dodgy end of town in this very dodgy flat and picked me up from there? I, I wonder what she'd been told that she hadn't thought, this is really bizarre that Katie's living on her own at 16. Um, yeah, so all, all of these, anytime there's sort of an accolade, the, the world imploded when she found out that I got married and she hadn't been invited to the wedding. And again, I thought even stranger because by that time I think it had been over 20 years and of all the days to see someone for the first time why would it be that day but it's all the outside things the, mm. the things in which she can be judged um and I I remember um feeling quite odd when I was younger I was never quite comfortable around people and that still resonates with me and I think for a lot of people with narcissistic parents we develop this sort of I don't know if this resonates with you, a hypervigilance. Oh, yeah. So sometimes I feel like the Terminator. So I come in a room and it's almost like I have all this data scanning down my eyes as I'm running, mm -hmm. as I'm reading the room. So I could judge how I was supposed to be in and who I was supposed to be in that moment. I remember when I was at home and she would come in, I would listen for how she walked up the stairs because I could judge the mood and then I could judge who I was supposed to be and also judge whether I wanted to be that person that day or whether I was going to, just be myself and you know put up with the wrath that that might yeah. um might ensue but I did certainly feel odd when I was younger and I realize now looking back that it's taken me a long time to start working out who I am and I'm still really working on that and I think that's because I was brought up to be a template of my mum because that was the only way that I could be worthy was to be like her but then the the clashing thing is I don't think she likes herself either. So it was, you got to be like me, but then also doesn't want me to be like her. That's so, it's, well, every time somebody says these things and I relate so heavily and I'm like, are you talking about my experience? Or are we talking <laughs> about your experience? And I say it every time almost as if I'm shocked, but it seems to be such a common theme when you are raised by narcissistic parents the lack of self-identity especially in my case I was mm. incredibly enmeshed with my mum I was you know if you'd have asked me 10 years ago 15 years ago I'd have said she was my best friend everything was yeah. wonderful but actually in reality we had an incredibly toxic relationship where she drove anyone who became close to me away sabotaged my relationships encouraged me to be a reflection of her Mm -hmm. in often very negative ways that now I look back on and think gosh that wasn't behavior that I, I would like to do now and we all we all have that from our our late teens mid-teens early teens we all look back and think oh that yeah. wasn't great that's perfectly normal but for me it was like I was constantly trying to be the good daughter constantly trying mm. to be the loyal daughter and that lack of self-identity is huge and it's yeah. so it's such common thread amongst all of these conversations that I've had and really struggling with finding out who you are I think people who have these healthy attachments with parents who have these healthy dynamics or at, at least some kind of semblance of normality within their relationships there's not that there's that good foundation of who you are yeah. by the time you get to adulthood, not that floundering of who do I need to be for people to like yeah. me. And I saw a great interview the other day and I can't for the life of me remember what it was on. It was a clip that I caught on Instagram and it said that the opposite of belonging is actually fitting in. 
And I thought, well, that doesn't sound right, does it? But actually, when you think about it, fitting in, and they were explaining it as they went through, fitting in is trying to be what other people need Mm. or want from you. And belonging is having that place. And I can say with clarity, I don't think I've ever really felt like I've belonged. No. Especially not until I got to much older years. I was always trying to work out what other people needed me to be, Mm. what kind of person I was going to show up as. And we talk about having a a work self and having, you know, maybe a family life self. We've all got these different versions of ourselves. But the majority of us, when we have those foundations, can say, okay, yeah, well, these are all just slightly tweaked versions of me to perhaps be more professional, to perhaps be more fun here or perhaps be a bit sillier with my kids. Whereas for me, it can be a complete personality shift. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's in grounding, isn't it? Because I think when you belong, that's, you, your feet are on, are on the ground. This mm. is where you belong. But fitting in is all lifted up and filling these boxes, filling these shapes around you. And I do remember when I was 14, 15, I had this sense, and I remember using these words at the time, that I was just floating. That, and and that now makes sense as an adult because there was no roots anywhere anymore. It was just floating between these roles of, of who to be. And you're right, these are really, really common things that children with narcissistic parents being the extreme end, well, one of the extreme ends of the scales, but many people feel when they haven't had a connected relationship or a fraught relationship with their parents, whether they're narcissists or not, because that sense of safety in being able to, like you said, as as teenagers, go off and make mistakes, the difference if you have that grounding with your parents uh, and you go off and make mistakes is you have a safe place to come back to and go, you know, and, and cry over the mistake, feel humiliated over the mistake within the safety of that family who they might tell you off, but ultimately you're safe there. When you don't have that, those mistakes feel so much bigger because it's not just making a mistake. It seems like it's intrinsically tied to your self-worth or this is yet more evidence that I am not enough to be able to function in the world. And I think that's because you are missing that grounding that you were talking about of belonging. Absolutely. And that safe space for me, I remember being 14 and making a mistake with with a boy, as we do, because and if I'm completely honest, we can highlight the mummy and daddy issues here that I was harboring at the time, looking for love in any place that I could find Mm. it, more often than not in the most toxic of places. And I just remember thinking that this boy absolutely adored me and having my little heart crushed at 14 and there being so much shame Mm. piled onto me from my mother as opposed to support, love, empathy, kindness, care, all of the things that I now look at my kids and I'm like, you know what, teenagers, they do some dumb stuff because they're learning. That's actually how we learn. We go out, we try things. We make mistakes with them and that's okay. That's perfectly normal. We're not going to get it right all at once. We're human. And there is just no way that I would make them feel the way that my, or or consciously make them feel the way that my mother consciously made me feel. Mm. And there was so much within that shame 
that you carry with you for so very long. In fact, yeah. I think still part of me, my inner child probably does still carry it with her mm. and still finds it difficult to let go of that shame. You know, it's it sticks with you. And I think, especially when I look at my own kids as they're getting older and my eldest who's 12, 12 and a half, he's coming up to that point where he's going to start doing silly things. He's going to start making those mistakes without those protective arms around me necessarily. Because once they get up to secondary school, anybody listening who has kids that have got up to secondary school, it's a whole different ball game. And it's, yeah. you know, everybody tells you it, but I don't think you really believe it until you see it mm. and you see how much they've changed. He's just come to the end of year seven and the that's a massive in- shift yeah. between year seven and year eight it just the last half of year seven and the first term of year eight I know it, in months it's like eight months but in maturity it's like three years the yeah. physical shifts the mental shifts I, I see it I still part-time teach now and there are these these huge shifts and actually I say to kids all the time um that you're supposed to make mistakes I the thing that I say at least once a day is that you're supposed to suck at 90% of the things that you do that you try and that's okay that's exactly who you're supposed to be I don't think people tell their kids that enough I don't think schools tell their kids that enough actually and it is really difficult and I heard this the other day and I think it's really important with what you're saying about your son all all teenagers trying things and messing up is you know that the the shift in their brain around that time is to try and work out who they are. And the greatest way to work out who you are is by working out who you're not. Yeah. And the only way to do that is, first of all, by not ha- not liking this a shift where they don't like their parents as much, isn't it? Because yeah. I'm not like you. I'm not you. So mm-hmm. That's the first step. And then the other step is to make all these mistakes, to try things and go, oh, no, I'm not that either. Try something else. Oh, I'm not that either. And that's how they... They form their identity, but it's such a painful process for them. It is, and it's meant to be a painful process for them. And you're meant to have those caregivers, those support networks around you to Mm. hold your hand and cushion you whilst it's painful. And that's something that I feel so many of us who had these experiences really lacked. A lot of my, it was almost like there wasn't room for me to make those mistakes because I was busy being the therapist for my mum. I was busy holding yeah. her hand through those mistakes that she was still making. I was busy listening to her woes and holding space for her emotions. And that's not the way that it's meant to be. And with you saying about them not liking your parents, that it, that really makes me chuckle because Ruben's definitely in the phase where he's not overly keen on me at the minute. Yeah. And well, because being... you're an absolute loser. Oh, yeah, I really am. Like, I'm incredibly embarrassing until I'm not. And I'm incredibly annoying when I'm asking him to yeah. do homework and things. But one thing that I have noticed, and there's a big difference in the way that I choose to parent and the way that my partner chooses to parent, he is much more uh, authoritarian. He will shout, he will tell, you know, he will say, you just get on with it because I say you get on with it, whereas I'll try and open a dialogue. And we do parent differently. But one thing that I have noticed is that Ruben's much quicker to express to me that he isn't particularly keen on me. He's much quicker to tell me and feel safe in shouting back at me, feel safe in saying to me, don't speak to me like that. I don't like Mm. that. That's not fair. You're not being fair. And then I will say to him, hang on a minute. Don't speak to me like that. 
I'm treating you with respect. You treat me with respect. And once he's calmed down, he'll say to me, sorry for being moody with you earlier. But we can have that back and forth and he can feel safe to do that. And for me, that works much better. I prefer that, that he feels safe to have those almost mini explosions at me and me Mm -hmm. say, hang on a minute, let's just take that down a notch. I'm not going to be spoken to like that. Calm yourself down and then come back to me. And he doesn't feel like he can do that with his dad. So quite often when we're exploding or when he's exploding and I'm trying to hold space for that, he will almost check himself when he's ready. Yeah, but you you just used the phrase there, which I was going to draw your attention to, that you said there was no space for you when you were a, a, a child. And then everything that you were just speaking about, all I could hear was, that you are creating this space you're creating this space for him to have his own reactions and then from that creates this in my opinion stronger relationship and I think if we want our kids to be fully fleshed out adults who have a high strong sense of self of who they are and from that self-esteem and from that confidence I think that comes from the parental relationship and that needs space to grow. If we are giving them the kind of parameters maybe that we grew up with, if it's black and it's white and you do what I say, then we're not giving them that space to sort of grow and find out who they are or, or learn how to manage their emotions. And right at the beginning of our conversation, you were talking about, and I mentioned it as well, about things that come up in our own parenting, in our present parenting. And my, for me, that is this, this triggered I'm very easily triggered into shouting um and that was the first work that I did was I knew I didn't want to be that person who shouted and I still have that I still have that when it comes out uh, and like you said then it's how do we deal with it how do we heal how and again that's I have clients who say oh god I've had a terrible week this has happened but most of the time because they're doing this conscious work of parenting without even me saying anything I said and afterwards I went back and I said you know I'm sorry and and, and gave them gave them the apology, gave them the I was the one in the wrong. And by doing that, we're modelling self-respect. We're modelling where we go wrong and how you have relationships, which in that kind of traditional parenting, that space isn't given to learn that. We all fuck up as adults just as much as we are going to as the children. Um, and I think that's certainly something that was missing from my own parenting and certainly one of my primary focuses is to allow my son to have those moods because we all have those moods don't we whether you're six 12 or 36 yeah you do and sometimes you just wake up on the wrong side of the bed or you've not slept very well or you're just Mm. annoyed by something anything we all snap I get a lot on social media of people saying oh so I guess you're the perfect parent when I talk about my mum and her my experiences with her and her behaviors and this is where I think there is a real stigma around this toxic parent dynamic and this dysfunctional dynamic is people think that you're expecting perfection and you're Mm. not because that's impossible. Nobody is a perfect parent. Nobody's ever going to be a perfect parent. And if you're looking to be, then stop it because it's just not going to happen. You're going to put so much pressure on yourself. You're masking something else. If you're going to be the person that's never going to be stressed, touchy, shouty, tired, that's just masking in a whole different way. That's people pleasing for your kids. 
interestingly, that's actually probably describes accurately the first three years of Ruben's life was me so heavily involved in parenting, so desperate to go to every club, so desperate to be the perfect mum, loving baking, loving crafting, loving doing this. Everything was wonderful. And actually, I was just really miserable. And not because I was struggling to be his mother, but because I also had the pressure of my own mother. I also had the pressure of my own relationship mm. and my husband and my mum not getting on. It was, it was a nightmare. But I focused everything in on being this wonderful, happy, happy mum that actually wasn't my style of parenting at all. And there are elements of things that I, I love and I enjoy. But I'm a very different parent now to the one that I was then. And I look back and I can see those moments where that anger and that resentment and that mask slipped. And I wasn't able to keep up this illusion that I was this perfect mum and everything was going great. Mm. And that slipped out on my kids, in particular on Reuben. And I know that. And that's something that I have to work on and be accountable for. But when it comes down to this idea that you want this perfect parent, you don't. You just want a parent who's accountable for their mistakes and builds a repair into the relationship. And Reuben loves it when I'm like, actually, you were right there. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know what? You are correct. That is my yeah. mistake. And he gets this little look about him that's so smug. And he's like... <laughs> Yeah. yeah but it's validating for them isn't yeah. it I mean we, we, you've used in in our talk today expressions of you know being seen and being heard and how validating is it for you to be the child in what traditionally we would call you know adult child relationship and be able to be the one who's right mm. one of the big shifts that I try to make with the parents at work with me is stopping seeing it sort of as an adult and parent thing and starting to neutralize it as a a mutual relationship where you can both be right you can both be wrong at different times but it shouldn't be I'm the adult so I know best and I'm mm -hmm. right particularly with teenagers I think that's really important because you don't necessarily know best with teenagers because when you were a teenager the world was very different let alone you being an individual who's different anyway and I was talk about trying to shift from being you know when you've got little children you are the expert on the world and I think when you get into those late tween years and go into those teenage years, you've got to kind of step back and stop trying to parent as the expert and try to actually be the student of who they are and learn how to build influence rather than, or even coach them rather than be the parent so that they are the one driving their sort of circle of life rather than you. Cause when they're little, it's you, isn't it? And when, yeah. When they're a teenager, you just need to give the right guiding questions so that they start to work it out themselves. And that's how they build that stronger sense of who they are, rather than us all the time saying, no, this is the right way, that's the wrong way, do as I tell you to do. Because often we don't know, do we? We, we, we don't know. We, we make mistakes as well. So how can we even, we mess up our own lives. How can we pretend to be the expert in someone else's life? Exactly. And I think whilst there's always that level of, uh, I often talk about how when we say, oh, it's my child's my best friend, or, you know, we've got that um, reciprocal relationship, that's not necessarily mm. there, because I don't want them to be responsible for my emotions in the way that mm. I was. But having that mutual respect is not that having that level where you can meet each other and say, actually, okay, no, you might be right about this. Yeah. That's something that's really powerful, I think. And something that we didn't have growing up, that idea mm. of mother knows best, certainly for yeah. me, was incredibly inaccurate. 
incredibly yeah yeah and something going back to the what sounds like the kind of parents that we both shared as narcissist parents was if I ever did say how I felt about something or what I thought about something the common response would be no you don't you don't think that um and I didn't even recognize that as being frustrating at the time but I can look back now and I can almost feel what I felt then of it mm-hmm. it's being shut down oh no you don't think that oh no you don't feel that uh, and whether she meant whether she really thought these, I don't think, I think she was working off her own subconscious. I don't think she meant to do or be as harmful as she was. Um, but those things did suppress that process of validating me as an individual that kids need. They need that validation of of us recognizing that they see the world differently, that they think the world differently. It might be the same experience, but they're going to experience it differently from us and, and to make them feel that that's okay. Yeah, that that kind of gaslighting of no, you didn't feel that way. No, you didn't think that way. There was something that my mum used to do. And I'll be honest, if I'm feeling gracious, I would say perhaps she was working off herself, off her subconscious. But um, if I'm not, I think she was keenly aware of what she was doing uh, in terms of she used to say to me, I know you better than you know yourself oh yeah yes and that one for me was it's still triggering now yeah it is I can see everything's just gone oh oh. and I'm sure that listeners as well some of you might have flinched hearing that because it for me I heard it not so long ago someone talking about it how it is incredibly common for narcissistic parents to say it because it's that erosion of self yeah it is you don't know you so how could you yeah. possibly know what you were thinking? I know you better. Mm. I am in charge of this. I am the one who knows what you need, what you want, who you are. I know you better than you know yourself. Mm. And it's so, it's very insidious in the way that it's done, I feel. And I think it's incredibly difficult. And it goes back to that stopping you from developing that sense of self. Yeah. Yeah so that you can continue to fulfill a role that they, whether subconsciously or consciously, need you to that fulfill. They, yeah. And when you were saying that, I got this feeling of, um, like my mouth being sewn together, mm. like being muted. Oh, you don't know yourself. It's like that you can, you can just button that. Uh, I know I said, so, you know, sometimes she was working off her own subconscious. There would be, you know what I even question it now as she got a grip on reality because there would be things that she told me to do and then when I did them she would deny I would get told off for doing them and she would deny that I'd been told to do them or things that she did that everyone knew she did she would just absolutely deny no that didn't happen um and it was all so yeah sometimes I think subconsciously she and then other times I think she must have known these out and out lies. She must have, surely. Either that or she's completely detached from reality. I don't know. Um, and I, I, I think now looking back, that's probably why she moved three hours away so she could reinvent herself and reinvent her story so that people wouldn't know her, her history. And I did used to get, when we first moved to that place, I did used to get into a lot of trouble if I ever let slip anything and she found out she would be very angry that I, I told people stuff um in fact I remember my friend coming around after school one day and um I was upstairs and I thought where's my friend gone she went to the toilet I went downstairs and my mum had her in the living room 
telling her life story to my friend, but her version of my life story. And I remember again, just thinking that was the beginnings of me thinking this is, this isn't right. You know, this, this just isn't, this is weird. No, I don't go to other people's parents' house and they sit me down and tell me their intricate sob stories. It just, Actually, I did go to one friend's house and her mum did do that. And do you know what I thought? And I was 14, I thought, this is, didn't use this term at the time. Now we would call it a red flag. And I remember <laughs> at the time thinking, this is a very weird situation. Why would you be telling me this? Why would you be telling me these stories? Why are you putting this story on my back? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that my mum would do. She would put this sob story on someone else's back so that she could gather her supporters against yeah. me. It's very odd, isn't it? And it's it's that insertion into your life as well. I know for, for us, my mum lived with us for a number of years before we built her an annex mm. on our property and then had to ask her to leave. And um, when she was living with us, eventually it got to the point where friends would say, we're not going to come round because she would come and sit with us all as opposed to go and do her own thing. Yeah but she would come and join in conversations or she would say something that she'd overheard in a conversation asking about a personal issue that they'd been talking to me about or she'd be incredibly rude to friends that came round and I, I remember one of my friend's mums had passed away and she took it really hard her mum was both her the closest person they had a wonderful relationship that was very close but also her carer um and her mum passed away quite suddenly after a short battle with illness. And after about a year, a year and a half, my friend was sat talking to me at the kitchen counter and she was saying, you know, how difficult she was finding things still, how she was really struggling with the grief, how much her child was struggling with the grief of losing grandma. And my mum had turned to her and said, wasn't that about a year ago? don't don't you think you need to start moving on now and I just my jaw dropped and I at the time I'd said to a mum that's incredibly inappropriate my friend had just said don't worry about it because my friend was so used to little yeah. comments when I perhaps hadn't been there and there were so many occasions you know when she'd stopped a friend who I'd not long had a, a baby and she'd stopped a friend and said well you haven't been calling her to check up on her have you in front of me She's been very upset that you're not bothering. Well, that was one of the last times we spoke. She didn't call me again because she was getting a telling off when yeah. coming around and all these little ways in which she needed to insert herself into relationships, mm. be it in a let's just sit down and be one of the group way or be it as positioning herself as some kind of defender or attacker, depending on what mood she was in. And it was really weird. And this was when we were in 20s at this point you know so the enmeshment ran really deep to not have yeah. cut ties with that sooner and now looking back I can see it but before I always just thought oh well she just she just likes to be involved and well, because you it was your norm it, though wasn't yeah. it it's all you'd ever known and then when you remove yourself from it I mean I'm sure it's different for everyone but I think the experience is that I don't know it takes a long time before you start your norm shifts and then you look back and go oh actually now I can see all of this stuff that is normal that in this new space I'm living in it, yeah that's not normal 
Yeah. And it does. It takes coming away, setting your boundaries, be that setting boundaries where you have lower contact and you're just saying, hey, you know, what? actually, I'm not going to tolerate that yeah. or be that especially for myself, it required a complete shutdown of the relationship mm. and I'm not not going to have any contact with you to really step out of it. And the more that you work on these things and the more that you look at your past experiences, the more you start to remember. And that can yeah. be really triggering as well. That yeah. can be really difficult to start to remember these things and think, God, that wasn't acceptable. Oh God, well mm. that happened as well. And so much of my childhood that I had really forgotten and completely yeah. blocked out has started to come back now and it, it makes for both traumatic and interesting re-experiencing yeah. mm. and I have memories as well which I've always remembered but being older and having done the work and really for me it's about having done the work that I've done now I've got the same memories but see them from a different perspective so something where I used to remember with shame, now I can remember and it either makes sense or I can think, I'm not the one, in, I wasn't the one in the wrong there. That was dealt with, that that was dealt with the wrong way and it yeah. wasn't mine to hold at all. I should not have held the responsibility for that. But it's funny when you said about um, removing yourself completely. I think when you are talking about narcissistic parents, most people do end up having to remove themselves completely because it is an all-in or all-out situation. Mm. Like I said, I have, I mean, it's been such a large stretch of time. And over that time, there probably have been four or five attempts not to rekindle a relationship. Um, A psychotherapist once said to me, which was a real light bulb moment, that I need to accept that I will never have a relationship with my mother or should never have a relationship with my mother because I'm not chasing a relationship with my mother I'm chasing a fictional relationship with a fictional mother and that will never ever be possible so when I was contacting her it wasn't to try and nurture uh, a mother-daughter let's go and have money and pedis together it was simply because I felt I just felt sorry for her and I just wanted her to have someone to call if if the shit hits the fan and she needs something I wanted her to know, you know, there is somebody here. And she had, she had rejected that, well, she rejected it over and over again because she couldn't be, it needed to be all in or all out. Mm-hmm. And the signs were still there within that time that she was still the person that she was back in the 90s. I remember one conversation I'd had, it was in the early days when I tried to rekindle a relationship and it was, it must have been Christmas Eve or something and I rang her. I think I had a little bit to drink. <laughs> and we had a we had a conversation for quite a long time. And then um in it she said something about her sisters. Nobody speaks to me. And and I said, this is what she hates about me, that I would I would always say the truth. I did when I was nine. She hated it. I did it. I did it then. I said, Well, you know, that's not true. I know they have reached out to you. She cut the conversation short, mm-hmm. hung up, actually hung up on me. And the next day when on Christmas Day went out, when I came back, um I still had an answer machine at that time. That's how long ago it was. And um, she had rung and she said, I know you're not there, but I just wanted to say, um, it's it's not me. It is my sisters and they are the ones who are in the wrong, not me. And then she put the phone down and I thought, and that, that was, a, you know, another moment. She's never going to change. It has to be her version of events, no one else's events. 
no one else's opinions, no one else's views, just hers. And I thought then again, I, I can't ever have, I can't have this relationship. Or if I do, I will have to be very, very boundaried about it. But from her perspective, she needs to be all in, accept me and my view, you don't have a voice or not have any relationship at all. She can't, she can't just have the birthday cards, Christmas cards. When I work with clients who are talking about, you know, coaching through their experiences with toxic parents and moving forwards, perhaps trying to set boundaries without fail, the vast majority of people who I work with, who I speak to will say to me, I have been trying to set boundaries for the past Mm -hmm. year, two years, five years, 10 years, whatever it might be. Every single time we have a grace period of kind of almost like love bombing. Mm-hmm. And or it is love bombing. It is. And, yeah, it is. It is, bombing, it is yeah. love bombing uh, of this grace period where they'll respect my boundaries, and I think to myself, okay, yes, right, maybe now things are going to be different, and then bam, straight back mm-hmm. to maybe there's a family drama that happens, maybe there's something else that happens, and it's straight back into that centering of self, that I'm right, you're wrong, that crossing yeah. of boundaries, and inevitably, what ends up happening is I help them work through going no contact. Yeah. How they want that to look as opposed to how they want boundaries to look. And they set that ultimate boundary of, I'm not going to let you be in my life. Mm. And that's the thing that's really sad. The majority of people that I speak to who are in these situations with toxic parents, be they a narcissist or whatever it might be, who simply cannot, no matter what it's going to cost them in the Mm. end, respect that boundary they end up going for no contact because they just can't have a relationship with someone who can't give them the respect and the kindness and the empathy and the compassion that they need, which is what we need to have a mutual relationship. And it's just, it's really sad, but it is something that I think the majority of us who have been in that situation do have to reconcile at some Mm -hmm. point and you come full circle with it. You get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm really, this is really sad. And I can feel complete compassion for myself. I can feel a real empathy with that inner child who desperately wants that relationship that looks this way. But knowing what I know about this and how I want this to look, knowing the reality of the situation, no contact's the only way. Yeah. And it, and that's a grief. I, I mm. think that's a grief. And I did, I do still feel this. And, you know, you mentioned... Um, the inner inner child earlier and I I do still have that that a thought regularly comes into my mind of I just want my mum to love me regularly that comes up first thing in the morning that thought's there but there is a grief to it because I'm grieving something that's now I'm grieving a relationship that actually may never ever have been there ever have been there I, I believe she adored me when I was a little child and then when my own personality started to come through about four or five that's when the troubles began and um, one of the things which has really crept into my mind recently is you know she's 72 now and at some point in the next five to 20 years that ability to or the not ability that that possibility of there being a moment when we see each other again is not going to be there that possibility is going to go and although Everything I've said is that I know that this relationship is 
toxic. I know that it's never going to be something which works for me. It's something that I would certainly protect my son from. And that's a whole different conversation of how to broach it with your children. Um, it's still a desperately sad feeling to think that then that's finitely gone. Something that I've already grieved for 27 years will be finitely gone. And I wonder what that grief will be like. I don't know whether it will be like um, my dog who I adored when she died, 13. I was devastated for a day. And then I was fine because I thought she lived a great life. She lived a great life. Yeah. Will it be like that where I grieve? I have that final grief for something that was never, that never was, and then carry on. Or is this something which is actually going to take both barrels to both kneecaps? and wreck me again for a couple of years is this something that's going to peel me apart because it's all going to come up all the could haves should haves are going to spill out I don't know and I think when those of us who do walk away from these relationships we it, there's this process that you go through like you said working out those boundaries are never gonna happen working out that you're going to have to leave the relationship going through the immediate grief of that forging this new life without that relationship but somewhere down the line, there's this final stage, which many of us don't think about until our parents to those 70s, 80s and 90s. And it's, for me, that's really a land I don't hear people talking about. It's the unexplored one so far. It is. And I've spoken to a few people who've talked about the grief following the death of a parent who they've been no contact with and how difficult they found it. I've also spoken to people who have said, that actually for them it was almost a relief which then they had to deal with the guilt surrounding that feeling of yeah. relief that feeling of they can't actually try and contact me again they can't actually come mm. for me again um and that's the language that's been used and I've had other people who've said to me well do you know what? I'm gonna go to bloody Disneyland because I will be glad to see the back of them um and I've had people who've said no actually it's crushed me and I think it's different mm. for everyone. I think it really is. And I've often speculated of how it's going to look for me because my mum is also 72. Are you sure we're not twins? <laughs> <laughs> and I, she's had ill health for a long time. I saw her through a lot of it, saw her through hip operations and all sorts and did my best to be the best that I could for her, uh, which of course was never enough. And I often have said, you know, I don't think if she were to contact me and say I'm on my deathbed, and I want you to come. I don't think I would come, but I can't swear to it. Mm. Because until you're in that moment, until these things do happen, we can speculate and we yeah. can say, you know, this is how we think we'll feel. But you can't be sure. And that, again, yeah. it becomes an unknown. And I think if there's one thing that we don't particularly like as kids of narcissists is the unknown. Yeah. Oh, God, control. Yeah. yeah. Because we always everything... have to deal with it. Yeah. And someone said that, to, not someone, a therapist said that to me once when I said, oh, I just, I'm such a control freak. And I even, you know, even to the point that I need everything clean and tidy in my house so that I, before I can feel like I can relax. And I remember her saying, it's not surprising that you like control because everything you have described is all the formative years of your life. You have no control whatsoever. You know, some, some days, well, not some days, there were there were a number of weeks when I didn't even know where I was, you know, I was on the homeless register. I didn't know where I was going to be. So there was no control over anything. Mm. That's not surprising that I'm needing control now. And again, it's it's those things that when someone says it to you, it's that cliche of a light bulb moment and going, oh, yeah. 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 
that's so reassuring the power of being seen and heard that's so reassuring that someone validates it and goes yeah no no it's okay that you like things clean and tidy Mm -hmm. I can see why yeah yeah validation is really powerful and I think that was that was my main driver for wanting to create this podcast was to validate how people feel and to say you're not alone in these experiences Mm. and I think that is I think it is one of the most powerful things I mean god we'd all be in such different situations if we had parents who would respect and validate us yeah absolutely yeah and I think coming from it from a different angle of why sometimes people have said oh why do you work with parents and it's I don't want anyone to have a relationship with their parent or their child like I had but really it's because what I after all these years working with teenagers as a teacher what I really want is for kids to feel validated themselves yeah. and I think the best way to do that is to work with parents so that they can see firstly that that's their primary job is to make their kids feel seen and heard as they are not how we want them to be but as Mm. they are and then to help them know how to do that because many of us just don't have those tools they weren't modeled for us and I don't think society actually is set up or has been in the past for us to think about particularly tweens and teens needing to be seen and heard as they are everything is set up that tweens and teens should be something else than what's naturally coming out. You know, they're losing their temper, be something else. They um, they need to hit these markers in their curriculum to be deemed as worthy or doing, you know, being successful um, rather than us working out who they are and helping them see that they're successful just the way they are. Oh, absolutely. And I love that. No, and I love that because there is real power in seeing who you are and accepting that we're all different and that our learning and our growing, even now, mm. is not linear and it doesn't look one way. And that's yeah. absolutely fine. Yeah. Katie, you have been such a great guest. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Podcast. No, thank you so much for coming on. Can you let people know where they can find you if they'd like to get in touch or if they'd like to follow your work? Absolutely. So um, I run the Happy Wellbeing Club. So that's my uh, website.co.uk. I'm on TikTok, Instagram and Facebook under that. And I also have a Facebook group, um, Calm Connected Parent Club amazing so please do come and follow or if um you want to reach out please do so and um we can chat amazing thank you so much and guys thank you so much for listening and i will speak to you next week bye planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.